welcome back to Now. In this podcast, we celebrate all things related to the variously compiled world of pop. As we open up the gatefold vinyl sleeves, unfold the cassette inlays or slip out CD booklets, we will also consider the wider world of pop culture and how our favourite compilation albums shaped our lives and now fondly stand as time capsules for our own musical journeys. I hope that you'll enjoy sharing in some memories and insights. If you do, please spread the word and let me know your thoughts at www.backtonow.music.blog or on Twitter with myself, Ian, at PopRambler. For this episode, I had the great pleasure of chatting with Pete Selby. Like so many of his peers, Pete cut his teeth as a teenager in our price records and has subsequently spent the rest of his career working in both music and publishing industries. As head of music for Sainsbury's, he launched the exclusive own brand vinyl record label with Sonetien's Bob Stanley and has co-authored two official books on the history of Now That's What I Call Music. So to get things underway, I asked Pete to tell us about early music memories growing up. I can never remember a time when there wasn't music in the house and I think actually when you listen to a number of similar podcasts um, obviously people of a, of a, you know, a similar disposition they often say the same thing I think it was it was it was always there so I think I was very lucky I had um, two parents who were both into music so you know I was you know from my mum's side she brought the Beatles to the table my dad bought more of a sort of like classic rock feel and they were they, they kind of were always there in, in the house when we were growing up but I think actually the first thing that I really remember, um, and certainly the, you know, the, the records I absolutely cut my teeth on were Mike Bats Wombles albums. Um, so I think, you know, obviously Wombling songs, I believe it was 73. I was just, the context of this, I was born in 1973. So just, and so I must have, must have been about two when these sort of, you know, I was aware of these records. And I was saying, Wombling songs album, um, but the Super Wombling album was the one that, that really hit the spot. And I think uh, it's only in later years you realise quite how clever Mike Bats been with that by, Pulling out, you know, there's a there's a reggae track, there's a prog rock track, there's a James Bond version, uh, the you know, James Bond theme. So um, those those were the records that, that were very much there from you know when I was uh, I was in the cot. But then, say, growing up, um, it was a, a, a sort of a, a diet of classic '60s rock and pop, um, and I guess not you know not being old enough for punk, uh, but certainly being old enough to to pick up that the tail wave of kind of this new wave, but also you know, I guess what we now know is that sort of like new pop explosion. I was, I was right at the right age at that time when that absolute exploded around me. It just felt like the most exciting thing. Um, so from a very young age, just feeling this, this was just the, the most incredible thing to be sort of surrounding myself with. And then never really, never really looked back. And, you know, that's, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started. Really. If you were growing up as, as we were, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of similar age. I was born in 72. Looking back now, we're kind of told there was tribes, but actually, as you were growing up, it was quite acceptable to let Mike Bat flow into Elvis Costello, flow into Depeche Mode, flow into Bardo, whatever it might be. You know, we, mm. I think, kind of growing up, you know, we had, we had all of those touch points. We had Top of the Pops and we had Radio One. And, and I think also as well, I mean, I, I mean, I think back to my own listening, commercial radio was you know, it was a big, big factor for us growing up and it didn't discriminate. And, and I think that gave us that kind of, um, 
wide range and you know I mean certainly I can say that but being at school there was still that tribal thing I don't know if you remember there was certainly that musical tribal thing there were certain acts and certain things you just wouldn't talk about I think you're absolutely right it, it didn't feel to me growing up discriminatory and I, and I think that is why you know what we come on to talk about what we're talking today why this particular year felt like a bit of a watershed for me in, in, in that respect um, but certainly at that age it, you could absorb all of this all and the same when I grew up in a house that was was very much built on classic 60s pop. And I think that my other key influence was I had an uncle, quite a young uncle, who you know, got me into prog rock. I was like balancing all of these things, but it, not feeling unusual. It was just it was just exciting music to me. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, again, thinking about what what kind of influences us kind of growing up. Um, certainly in our house as well, the radio was always on. My mum was instrumental in in uh, introducing me to old compilation albums i think i think that's kind of um certainly our house was full of them and you know um praise be to ktel and to ronco and all these companies um who you know certainly kind of influenced our listening so um very very interesting kind of doing those comparisons <laughs> You've segged very beautifully there by talking about the year that we're going to focus on. And you've decided to take us back to the summer of 1986. Um, and very interesting to, to find out why. Can you tell us why you've chosen that period in particular and what life was like for you then? 1986, again, obviously being born in 73. So beginning of 86, uh, I was 12. I turned 13 in May. Um, so obviously when this particular album came out, I, you know, I was, I was, a, I'd become a teenager and it seems it's just kind of a really pivotal year. And, and actually I can look back at this cause I, I, I kept a diary for, uh, pretty much all my childhood. So from about 1983, uh, all the way through to about 94. And, and a lot of it to be fair is just had sausages for tea or played Commodore 64 with Lee next door. But actually when I look at the diary from 86, that I can really see this difference between like this, this in theory young boy at the beginning of the year who's still going to cinema with his family. And then by the end of the year, I'm going to cinema with my mates and being rejected by girls and all the other sort of stuff that we kind of go through when we're growing up. And I guess that, that point in the summer as well is that real tipping point between finishing being a year two and becoming a year three and feeling like all of a sudden, you know, you're 13 and you're the big man, which of course is absolutely nonsense. So this record in particular really kind of straddles those two points in time, but actually kind of, kind of coalesces, I think, in that, in that summer. So it's quite, quite a significant summer in that respect. In, in particular, we're kind of going to focus a lot of the conversation around, now that's what I call Music 7, and which was released in August of 1986. Um, but obviously fed a lot of the kind of pop music from the first six months or so of 1986 into that. Um, Commodore 64, we can't, we can't skip past that without, without at least just taking a bit of a, a pause to think of how many households up and down the country had teenagers of that age, um, probably in darkened rooms as well, probably uh -huh. waiting, waiting for cassette games to load. Um, you also mentioned there just about kind of films and TV. I mean, what um, in the summer of 1986, what would the, uh, the, the Selby trip to the video shop would have looked like or what would the cinema have been? Well, I guess it took, you know, we, we, got, a, we got a VCR. Uh, we, were, we were VHS. Um, I think you were, you were, I believe you were, you were beaten back. So oh, I think yes, yes, <laughs> yes. That, and you again, know the better quality. We have... <laughs> 
<laughs> we also had the very, very limited choice so in the video shop. Well, I think what, what strikes me, as we get, like, and I, I can say I captures by looking through various diary entries, which I can sort of come on to, um, but we seem to be hiring videos all the time, in, like in 1986. And I guess we had, we had the VHS, VHS machine probably at the end of 85, so it's still an incredible novelty. It was wonderful to be able to obviously just go and you know, obviously hire out a video. But the one thing that struck me, I think that there's one particular point where I, you know, I, I make reference to, you know, my mum goes to the video shop to try and rent Ghostbusters, has to order it. And then I think about three weeks later on, you know, we can pick it up. So there was a little bit of a, a, a bit of a time sort of lag there. So I guess everything that we were seeing in 85 and 86 were those films. That it, it took about what, 18 months is my memory for movies to move from, you know, the, you know, the, the, the cinema and theatrical release, you know, to, to, to home entertainment. So, you know, 86 was... Ghostbusters and it was Indiana Jones and it was the Goonies um, and, and those are kind of like things I guess we, we, we were watching at, at home but at the same time I seem to spend a lot of time going to the cinema as well you know I think there's the, 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 I'm excited about going to see Condor Man with uh, with um, Michael, Michael Crawford Ford. yeah um, you know, there's, there's a double head I see Spies Like Us uh, you know sort of one day and I think Rocky Four at the end of the week or something so it seems to be quite a big part of, of what we're doing but I think coupled with that same time where um, it was where you went with your friends when you went out with your mates the first time so you know sort of turning 13 and starting to have that bit of independence I guess it was a relatively safe thing to be seen to you know to, to do when you're, when you're that age and you know just, there's not much you can do when you're you know sort of turning you know, sort of into a teenager in like the mid eighties. It's there's not quite so much available to kids as there is nowadays. So um, that seemed to be yeah, a big thing that you know that we, we used to do. I even remember myself. Um, oh, must have been about the summer of eighty four. I would have been about eleven or so. Um, and the big TV, the big terrestrial TV premiere was Flash Gordon, and uh, which obviously mm-hmm. was you know that that's about three four years prior to that. You know, and the the excitement in school of this and um, I remember my friend with his small cassette player next to the television recording the soundtrack of the whole film and this I mean you know in a kind of pre-bootleg time for 10 year olds was quite a big thing you know pop culture wise for summer of 1986 um, as well so always good to kind of contextualize what the kind of pop culture what was happening from your diaries <laughs> and you know for, you know from other things um what were the kind of big the big cultural points for you for summer 86 i mean it was largely film music and television i mean obviously there, there were kind of things that were going on that you know that, that i was aware of see it's, it was a year of the royal wedding um you know there was the the year of the final wham concert at, at wembley stadium um uh, neither of which I was probably massively engaged in, but they they kind of informed the culture in as much as you know Wham in particular would be would, would be in, in smash hits every fortnight, and, and again that kind of informed um, my outlook on life uh, and how I engage pop culture, how it could be exciting and daft and silly, as as much as anything, and still does. I think you know we're probably both of a generation where, uh, as with many of our peers and friends, where smash hits is is just is so so significant at that point in our life it's just, it's just you know, the, the language that we use to describe not just pop music but but culture and and you know some of those phrases that i know we'll still use today so i think more than anything it was it was probably those sorts of publications that kind of informed a wider outlook and, and a wider viewpoint and then probably within that you've seen you know, particular writers as well who you know who we sort of you know, still know and love so um that was very much sort of driving i guess a lot of my yeah my uh, my thinking that direction 
The Wham split was a you know was a big story, obviously great material for smash hits as well um you know i can think to later periods when take that split for example and you know you could draw direct links back to that period you know the, i can remember I, I think there was a wham edition of smash hits that had that lovely kind of split cut across the screen between andy and george yeah. you know um and I, and I, and again i think kind of the next edition had the whole story of the day smash hits were great at that you know they did the kind of similar thing with live aid the year before where they kind of did that whole kind of smash hits version of the live aid day over a over a four-page spread, and you know, this, so they were they were they were well versed at being able to do that and capturing the zeitgeist of you know of these events. I think at the time, though, because the pop world was so fast moving, you didn't really get a chance to stop and think about the significance of these moments. No, absolutely. But I think I mean it was obviously exceptionally fast, and if you look back at you could pick most you know any year really from the nineteen eighties in particular and look at just some of these incredible singles or bands that kind of like coming through on what feels like an almost fortnightly basis but also at the same time i guess you know you, you were still waiting for that so if you take the live aid year you know you'll have top of the pops and you'll have like you know the the, the, the daily newspapers apart from that you know you were waiting for smashes to kind of give you that that proper lowdown on live aid and i i can't remember whether Smash Hits came out on the Wednesday after Live Aid in 85 or whether it was the following week. I'm not sure if it fell in the cycle, but, you know, that was still quite an event because actually that was the most comprehensive overview, obviously beyond spending the whole Saturday watching it, that, that you'd actually get. But so, you know, the behind the scenes being the Smash Hits eye, looking at, you know, looking at Live Aid through the, you know, the, the, the lens of, of, you know, people from Smash Hits who'd obviously been there and, and have been knocking around backstage with Paul Young and Alison Moyer and whoever. So um, it, it, it was it was fast. Just kind of thinking along those lines, as well, it's interesting with the Royal Wedding, because Royal Wedding passed me by completely as well. Um, I do I do remember it, but um, certainly certainly wasn't that kind of cultural high point. But there was so much going on, you know, there'd been, there'd been sport aid as well had happened just at the end of springtime as well. Going back to smash hits very, very briefly as well, there was always a fantastic double glossy page spread for each new Now album that came out. It just highlights, again, how important the compilation releases were and how they worked hand in hand with smash hits. You know, smash hits didn't give that kind of, you know, page 44, small column advert. This was a big, glossy, double-page spread. And, of course, they didn't just uh, let you know the album was coming out. They gave you the full track list as well. So, um, and, you know, and that, I remember, was, you know, for me in school, getting my copy of Smashes, opening that up. Um, Other people would be wanting to see the song words, I would be wanting to see maybe the latest posters. I was going straight to those adverts (laughs) just to see what that looked like. And, uh, you know, certainly I was looking at the edition here and it was just the beginning of August. Massive big double page spread for Now 7. Looks fabulous. And it says the Now compilation continues to be the highest selling hit series ever. Modest as ever. But then you only need to look at the track list to know why. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so... And, that, and that's the... But, I mean, I, I, but we, in terms of the track listing, I guess there was no... Um, uh, that's, that's how you find out. You know, you find about it in, in the magazine, in the fortnightly magazine, because there's yeah. no other way of knowing what's, what's going to be on there. The Now label presents its latest collection with Queen. Wham! UB40 and Peter Gabriel. 
Over 30 chart hits with David Bowen. And the number one from Christopher. Now that's what I call music seven. Feel the quality. I think in terms of, you know, the quality, and as you talk about that sort of modest as, you know, as ever, I think it was, you know, now six and certainly now seven, they use that feel the quality. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons why they started this series, which I'm sure we'll come on to, is that they knew they had... All right, same with the Crown Jewels and within Virgin and EMI, but but were able to um, obviously pull together albums that a lot of their their you know the the, the K Tales and the Roncos of this world weren't able to deliver, which also I guess kind of goes back to a lot of why they did this in the first place. And um, I think you know, they were right to feel confident. They're not complete. We know that. And again, when we come on to that, you know, we know they they're not representative of the whole. Uh, it reflected all the total top 40 at that time for, for, for you know, different reasons. Um, but they're still, they are still strong companies. And, and they, you know, that's reflected in the sales. These are big albums. I think um, even just a few years ago, um, just before the launch of Now 100, there was a, a fantastic article with the, with the compilation team in The Guardian. And I think at that point, you know, they were still only being outsold. You know, the Now albums were only being outsold by Adele. To measure that kind of success is incredible. It really is. Um, so, you know, I'm going to come on to look at Now 7 in a wee second, just to kind of have a look at, at you know, that album in particular. Um, and again, it's interesting that you say, not, not complete, but absolute time capsules um, and capture that kind of moment in time. But let's just sort of rewind back a, a bit, I suppose. And you started to talk a wee bit about you know, the compilation market leading up to now in 1983. Interesting to look at the whole concept of compilation albums, particularly in the 80s. And you know, that kind of move up to what, what then created the world of the Now albums and the Hits albums. Yeah, definitely. It's... it's um... And you can take it, I mean, going back a step further without uh, obviously you know, delving into uh, the history of too much later, but obviously, you know, you've got two, you've got two labels that are really dominating this market. So you've got KTEL and you've got Ronco. Both, I believe, started in, in, in the States. And Ronco dates back to like, the mid-60s. Um, I think the first one was in, the, in the UK was like around 72, and it was obviously like a, a, 20, a sort of 20 Star Tracks compilation. I also, curiously, I think the next year had uh, That'll Be The Day, the, the soundtrack album, yeah, uh, which is a massive album for Veronica. I think, you know, sort of five or six consecutive weeks at number one. So these aren't, by any stretch of imagination, Timbop compilations. And at the same time, you had um, KTEL. And KTEL, I believe, got started up as a telemarketing company who would actually sell the original uh, pre-Ronco products, so Ronco and issues. KTEL, the telemarketing company, would then would, would sell of those compilations and set up their, their own thing as well uh, under, under, under Philip Kyle's. And I think, again, their first album dates back to about 66 in the States. I think it was like 20, I think it was the country album, 20 country hits, 25 country hits, followed up by the 25 polka hits, which sold a million and a half copies of the States, um, which, is, which is, you know, which is absolutely fascinating. And I think, you know, by 1981, K. Tanner sold like, you know, 180 million dollars worth of like records you know that year alone so yeah. this was a really big business um so i think if you kind of like you, you move into the 80s and so if you look at 82 so you look at 82 which is the year before now started in uh in, at the end of 83 there i think there's about 13 top 10 compilations um when the when the chart was compilations and artist charts and all those albums are are k and ronco so you know chart hits 81 82 action tracks chart artists 
this chart busters etc um so it, it's i guess the only surprise really is that the major record labels took as long as they did to really in, kind of get their their act together and and obviously you know the virgin and, and emi sort of jv that, that that delivered now um and then obviously we saw cbs and Warner's club together to do hits obviously you know, later on in the year because quite rightly, they would look at these labels who were, in a lot of cases, Cato and Ronco licensing directly from artists, from the managers, uh, and realise they were, you know, someone else was eating their lunch. So why couldn't they get involved? And they knew the product that they could deliver would be, by virtue of the fact they could club together in this joint venture, far superior. And I think as it, you know, as it, as it proved right. I think interesting. I think one of the last, one of the last sort of big, like I said, Cato and Ronco, obviously, the Raising the Pop Charts is, is early '83. Yeah which is a number one album. And, and probably the, you know, one of those compilations that everybody kind of remembers. If you talk about the pre-now comps, everyone's, everyone seems to remember Raising the Pop Charts you know, from that era. But again, you know, look at the track listing on that. It's, it's a little bit shonky in places. It's not knocking it out of the park with, with every track. So it, the time was right. Just as you're chatting there, I'm, I've, I've pulled out uh, Superchart 83, two separate records as well. So, um, and back in those days, you bought one and you got the other one free, which was uh, which was very uh, kind of clever as well. But yeah, that that track listing is interesting because it certainly jumps around from a quality point of view, you know. Um, and obviously, there was still trying to obviously sell sell some records that maybe weren't in the charts yet, which again was a feature later. Of, of the now and hits, but they really hit the post with some of these tracks. They really do. Um, and I'm not going to name any names, but there's some that were obviously aiming Bring for... Names. Yeah, oh, okay, I will then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> didn't take much. Actually, to be honest, there's not too... One that particularly jumps out is a singer called Debbie Amy, which I actually went back and did a bit of a trawl through the pop books. Can't find her anywhere. So um, the aptly named track, No Answers, um, obviously, there were indeed no answers. And it was a new release at the time of the, of, of the album. But, you know, even looking across, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some big hits on here. Um, you've got Eurythmic Sweet Dreams. You've got Joe Boxers as well. You've got Rock the Boat by Forrest. You've got Freeze, IOU. Potentially, if you look at forums for now, lots of people will often have that great conversation, what were the great missing tracks of now albums? There's a good few on here that, you know, that could have been there. But looking at these albums, it's nearly there. You know, it's yeah. it's 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 getting there. Uh, also really like the fact that Gary Bird, uh, The Crown, which was a massive hit in 1983, full 12-inch version taken up almost one whole side of the record so whether that was whether that was an error i don't know you can see the evolution what labels that in that was telstar and telstar of course yeah another, you know another key player in, in in the market and actually you know we're still certainly into the mid to late 80s were were still obviously having you know big hits albums and then diversified a bit towards you know the, the end of the 90s and the early 2000s with things like obviously the you know the, the euphoria series in the early 2000s and then very successfully selling you know quite a few million copies of craig david's first album so um Absolutely. You know, there's then there's arcade as well remember arcade so arcade were another one those similar labels who um licensed a lot of i can't believe i've got a hot rock is it hot rocks rolling stones compilation I believe that's an arcade which just seems <laughs> 
<laughs> incredible now that actually an artist of that uh, that standing would like license their you know license their material to, to something like that. But but they yeah. at different times. One of the very first memories I have of growing up was an arcade coll- um, compilation that my mum had called Twenty Number Ones, and it I it's, it's just the most bizarre selection of tracks it starts with edison lighthouse it flows into the kinks mary hopkin it's just but it's an amazing compilation and i've i managed to salvage it from my mum before um, a house move a few years back and uh, you know looking back now it's i mean it's like the most e- eclectic paul gambaccini saturday afternoon you could ever think of <laughs> it's, it's quite something in the year 2525 uh, by Zager and Evans you know it's an um, absolute gold mine for a, a pop quiz if you were if you were ever needing to do one to be honest leading into kind of where we are in the summer of 86 with now seven there was um, obviously that kind of push through 1985 um, there was a kind of tightening up of the market between now and hits across mm. Warner and C, you know, CBS and EMI and Virgin, um, which kind of led us to where we are now. Um, were you aware of the albums leading up to these? Were you buying them? What kind of formats? Yeah, I was. I mean, I, I think, I mean, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll level with you here. You know, I, I didn't actually own Now 7 when it came out. So, so actually, my brother bought Now 7. Uh, but I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. But I think so. It was a time when, uh, you know, I, again, in my world, I was 10. You know, I didn't have a whole load of disposable income. So if an album came out at the right time that coincided with Christmas or a birthday, uh, I had enough pocket money saved up, then then happy days. So I was doing what everybody else was doing, which is making my own compilations, taping off the radio and just trying to obviously fade out Tommy Vance or Simon Bates when they were before they sort of crashed the end of the uh, the end at the end of the track when it was on the chart rundown. So it was a kind of a combination I think of, of, of both really. But I was yeah very aware of, of what we're doing very since you know since the first now. So I did have the first now on cassette. Um, and I came in at hits at the second hit so I didn't have the first hit. But was also aware, without understanding licensing issues when I was that age, that they sort of complement each other as well, and that was actually quite attractive to me. You know, obviously when you were when you're, uh, you know, a young sort of pop fan, um, but actually you realise you could have, um, you know, the hits album and the now album, and actually together you'd have a pretty good representation of the previous six or eight months. Christmas '85, I got my first record player. Beautifully wrapped next to that was Hits 3 and Now 6. And that was my entry level into the world of vinyl nows. I already had, I think, Now 3. Now 3 was my first cassette. Um, And I think up to that point, I'd maybe kind of copied a version of Now 1 from a friend. Um, But Now 3 and I think Now 5, I seem to work on odd numbers for some reason. I don't know why. (laughs) And um, and as I say, um, Christmas '85 was that kind of. I joined the the, the elite world of vinyl for myself, and um, hits three and uh, now six. Um, and it's interesting, yeah. You know that they they did complement each other. You know, you look at something like now six, and you had you know the big hitters like One Vision, and you had Fergal Sharkey and the Eurythmics, and then you jump across to side one on hits three, and you had Take on Me. And you had uh, Red Box, and you had King. Yeah. You know these types of acts, and then onto you know you had 
Raspberry Beret and Madonna. There was that kind of complementing across each other. Um, and you're right, we didn't know the licensing at that point, you know, but you could see that kind of, that kind of combination. But interesting looking back now at that particular Christmas period of 85, Hits 3 and now 6, there's a distinct difference in the look of them. Yeah, and obviously there have been three or four or five key points within, within like the life cycle of now. She has gone through a bit of a rebranding. The first two nails look quite different to, um, you know, sort of three, four, five. And then from 6 onwards, like 6 to around about 16, they, they really hit that beautiful um, yeah. like sort of design run where they're, they're just some fantastic compilations so I think obviously you know you had the pig from the first album which only came into its own for you know sort of three four and five um, they had a very clear design structure and I think um, what was great about that I, I guess you know from like six seven onwards up until like the late teens um, is they were creating these sleeves actually making something you know they've got that neon sign which they made on nail 10 you know they they the nail 12 they did stick numbers at the bottom of the swimming pool and paint some polystyrene balls and floats <laughs> on it you know there's the fireworks on, on nail 16 and you can feel that you can feel that there's a real a real love for the brand and knowing how to execute it in really interesting ways and it, it may well be that you know a lot of uh, with you know with hits they never quite managed to land on something that that worked i mean you know obviously you've got the, the hits for that mondrian sleeve which is certainly you know quite a, a, a bold uh a design to go for obviously the first two look very different to all the others but i don't think it ever really settled down into that in, into that recognizable groove that now managed to land very quickly and very confidently and then we were really able to play with that classic on like you know like the the, the three balls with like now spelled out in it and then the flash and the number um uh, and so I think that that clearly has some impact. You know, that works on the shop on the on the shop floor. That yeah. works in print media. That works on television. It works on big bus stop posters. And I think that is something that you know, apart from the, the slightly shonky sort of seventeen, eighteen, nineteen before it was, it was like relaunched with twenty, um, that now have always been very good at delivering. You know, there's yeah. a, there's a real confidence in that brand, and that's. You know, as well as the, some fantastic track clearances, that's actually been at the root of its success. Yeah, and it, you know, there was there was that point you could see from about hits four through to about hits eight, maybe when they tried to kind of match it. There, there was a kind of artistic look to it. Um, but interestingly, if you look back at them now, the only thing that really linked them was the font. <laughs> it was only really that kind of hits font, you know. But there was there was certainly a kind of simplification. But it just it just often didn't match up. And I think you're right. You know, there was a kind of lack of consistency. As soon as you see those three three coloured balls, you knew you knew what you were talking about. You knew where you were. So then, moving on to now seven itself. Uh, as we say, it was released eleventh uh, of August, nineteen eighty six. Um, I don't think I think I had it on cassette. If I if I'm being honest, I, I've I've now with the with the wonders of eBay over the years managed to kind of collect most of them across on vinyl. Let's take a bit of time then to think about the tracks itself and best place to start. Side one, track one, Sledgehammer by Peter Gabriel. It's a good start, isn't it? I mean, it's a strong start. I think what I like about what what I like about this now is that it kind of it 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 conforms to what you want to now to conform to, but and in terms of structure. And I think, and I think for that reason, 
it is one of the strongest ones and it is one of my favorites and it's not just about a moment in time for me but actually what you've got here is you know you've got the big pop hits on on side one you've got a slightly more sort of classic artists on side two with the pop hits the second or third side one was also like between dance side and, and the secondary tier you know, sort of pop hits and you've got that side three and then obviously the dance your side four and you and it, it's, it's bookended the right way so you've got the last track which is Pat LeBell and Michael Donald, the big ballad, maybe quite don't quite know where to put it elsewhere on the albums, you stick it at the end. And it starts off, you know, strong with, with Gabriel. I, I don't think it's the, the best start, if I'm honest. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a great single. Clearly it was his first big comeback, you know, first top 10 single for, you know, six or seven years. Um, I'd like to see it start off with Edge of Heaven by Wham. I'm going to be particularly picky here and just put my cards on the table and say, I think Edge of Heaven is the way that that, that album starts. Uh, I think there's a few sequencing niggles that we could, you know, we probably go into, but you know, look, I'm, 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 I'm picking it apart. Also. I think it's, it's a good statement of intent, and and you forget how big, you know, actually don't really do how big that single was, and and what a big album that was as well. And it yeah. just, it, 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 it sets its storm out, doesn't it? It feels very summer 1986, and I'm not sure if that's because we, you know, we have so many associations with it. Well, I guess it feels right for that time, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good opener. And also, you, you've got to remember the first seven albums. Now, that's the second member of Genesis to uh, to open a now, you know, pop hits compilation. Obviously, Phil Collins opening the you know the first one, which would have seemed you know incomprehensible like ten years previously, but uh, it kind of shows you where we are in the in the whole scheme of things. And it was certainly a big change for Peter Gabriel. Prior to that, you know, the closest we'd got to chart kind of material was obviously Games Without Frontiers, Shock the Monkey, hadn't really made it. This was a big change. I mean, it's a strong opener, but I totally agree. I don't know if it was the best opener. You know, you've got the whole Wham! who, you know, had not relegated to record two side one, but certainly moved across that way. Um, But strong opener. We have to talk about the elephant in the room here. It is strong. And I think the the thing... The, 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 the queen-shaped elephant. <laughs> it's a slightly... Go. It's, <laughs> and I would like you to maybe throw some light onto this if you can, in the fact that A Kind of Magic by Queen, now seen very much as one of the big pillars of Queen's back catalogue, was a bonus track on this album. So, And also, if we look historically, Queen often manoeuvred for, tra- for track one, side one, on the now albums. So let's 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 move this queen-sized elephant into the room. <laughs> it's um I, I mean one can only it's a licensing issue, isn't it? And, and actually shaping up late, one would imagine. So you're absolutely right. Um, I know that there was, I'm not quite sure how long this lasted for, but certainly if you look at Queen and or Freddie Mercury uh as inclusion throughout the years, um they opened up you know every time they were on a compilation they pretty much opened it and i, and I believe that was that was written to contract you want to clear queen or freddie mercury then they their side one track one it's the same with the adverts as well so weird if you look at the tv advert for now seven despite the fact it's a bonus track uh on, on the album they're opening the ad as well and, and that's something that lasted uh you know long into their into their, their career uh, and a, and a, you know, a, a smart move by i imagine queen and, and, and jim beach their manager um it's, I think the thing you have to look at here is almost the, the timing of the albums as well, because Kind of Magic had, had been a hit single earlier in the year. It yeah. wasn't completely contemporary at this point. I wonder whether there's an element of 
Queen and Queen's people looking at the time of the release of the Kind of Magic album as well, and whether they felt that by clearing this single for you know for now seven, that was going to have some impact you know on the album. Um, you know, there's that run, isn't there? I think it's all it is. I think it so gets knocked off by Kind of Magic, gets knocked by Invisible Touch and obviously you've got all those three songs the lead singles from these albums on this you know on, on this release um I can only imagine that it was it was just dropped in very late in the day um but it's still it's still curious because obviously you you there is no um recognition of it anywhere on the sleeve upon the sticker that has been placed uh on on front of you know of, of every copy of the of the album once it's released and it's buried away you know, relatively bad away at the end of the uh, the, the the second the first side of the, of the second record, and I guess it's kind of there because it would sort of make it would be a bit weird if it opened the record and actually there's no you know reference to it you know, at, at the start you know, before Edge of Heaven or before Sledgehammer. I think you know, despite the fact we can sit and say Edge, Edge of Heaven would have been a good starter had they cleared that in time, then Kind of Magic clearly would have actually opened side one, track one. Um, but I imagine that's what it that's what it comes down to. Quite a few one-hit wonders across now seven as well. Mm. There are, and, and and some and some proper genuine one-hit wonders. You know, Sly Fox. Uh, you've got uh, Camouflage by Stan Ridgeway. We could count Max Headroom certainly. Certainly not the you know the art the art of noise. And, and Pete Wiley, to be fair, wasn't flush with hits. But suddenly, you know, on that first disc alone, you've got Stan Ridgeway and Sly Fox. You've got Owen Paul. Huge hit single, but uh, nothing, nothing following up there. Uh, and also on the on the more on the dancey side, where you've got the the new shoes and Love Bug Starsky and uh, and Real Roxanne. And I, but I think that's what makes these albums richer. I think for me, those are the tracks that I think you kind of you go back to more because they can, in a lot of those tracks don't have that level of ubiquity that, for example, Sledgehammer does have. And I think that's why they they make. These, these amps stand up more because it makes it a bit more interesting. You know, you remember that these are still big hit singles. You know, Love Bug, Starsky, got was still, I think, number 12 single. And, and back in 1986, you still had to sell a few singles to, you know, to get to number 12. So, um, but yes, it, it does seem quite loaded with, with one who wonders. And some, but some brilliant ones as well. I mean, Let's Go All The Way by Sly Fox is, a, is an absolute tune. I mean, that's a, that's a belted track. Um, I'm also very partial to Love Bus Starsky's Amityville House on the Hill, um, which uh, I, I kind of like at that time. I liked that sort of slightly novelty electro-y hip-hop sort of feel. And it's funny actually because it, it, there's a great clip of him doing that on top of the pops on YouTube, um, which I don't believe would have been one of the ones they showed on BBC Two recently because it was mm. a Mike Smith front one. Yeah. But you know, man, he commits. He commits to that performance, even when he does the inexplicable uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner kind of like impressions halfway through it, which for whatever reason dropped in. But he's having a, he's having the time of his life. Is uh, yeah. not Bugstarsky on, on that track? And I think as well as that. A lot of one-hit wonders that, as you say, still stand the test of time, but still pop up quite frequently either across the radio stations. Um, now, very recently, um, had the the Forgotten series as well, um, two yeah. Forgotten 80s albums. And, you know, gone but not forgotten, I think, to be honest, a lot of these tracks still sound fabulous on the radio. I was always quite partial to The Real Roxanne. Hit me! Two 
two that sit really well together. Now we're always very good at that, still are, sitting tracks well together that paired and bang, zoom, brackets, let's go, go, close brackets, uh, real Roxanne and let's give Hitman Howie T the credit as well. Um, Absolutely. You know, I, and I can remember as, you know, a 13-year-old, that was, you know, that was a fun record and it was a fun summer record and it sat well. That whole side four record two side two you know it is it's a sunshine collection of pop when you think you know from from billy ocean jackie graham you you know who served now really well for a good run of albums new shoes it's a really kind of almost i hasten to use the word dance but i suppose it was for 1986 there was a lot of dance dance kind of elements to that side as well you're right you know having real roxanne and love box starsky looking up against each other and I suppose as well, that, that is worth mentioning that as of 1986, we had two numbered nows. There was only now seven and now eight. Yeah. Um, and you're looking at the kind of summer and Christmas market. So there was a lot of tracks to pull from. Um, and I suppose you could also argue, as we often do with now albums, tracks that were missing as well. Because there's quite a few, aren't there? If you look back, and it's interesting to talk about Billy Ocean because that was a, a February number one. And, you know, obviously gone on to be one of the biggest sellers of the year. But if you take that same period, there's big number ones from Falco. There's Rock Me Amadeus, which is completely missing in action across any of the compilation series. We have to mention Sieg Sieg Sputnik again. I mean, looking back now, there's a whole comedy element to what that kind of looked like. But if we were there at the time, there was a lot of media hype around that. And Love Miss I Left 111 was a big, big single. Um, where it would have fitted... And Giorgio Moroder produced single as well. So it's, yeah. it has a certain pedigree attached to it. Yeah. Where it would have fitted, I don't know. Um, and even Falco. I think Falco could have slotted into side one quite easily. Um, I think Sieg Sieg Sputnik probably could have sat within side three quite well do you know and uh, there was an awful lot of makeup on side three we've got doctor and the medics on there <laughs> so you know um i'm i'm sure tony james and, and co could have fitted in there quite nicely as well you know um i think so again what we are seeing here is the kind of slight push and pull against the licensing although interestingly we're seeing wham from cbs on there you're also seeing aha and simply red on there which is quite interesting. But there was obviously Hits 5 later on in the year were holding back some of the big tracks. So, for example, A Different Corner by George Michael, quite an early number one in, I think, around about April, May time. But Hits were bagging that for Hits 5 and kept that for later yeah. on. Um, so, yeah, missing tracks, but equally as well, a lot of a lot of big hitters on there. I just go, yeah, I go back to the missing tracks thing. I think there's, there's that, lots of things jump around a bit as well. I mean, so you have got things like Diana Ross, which turned up on Hits 4. Look at Hits 4 with the number one from Diana Ross. There's three five-star tracks that, you know, for now. And also, I think I think it's systematic that turns up on, on Hits 4. Um, you, know, you talk about things like George Michael on 5, but curiously, there are other hit singles that would have that were in the chart at this time, certainly June, July, August, that mm. skip seven and actually go straight to now eight. So, you know, you've got things like What Have You Done For Me Lately by Janet Jackson, which was a, an April hit single, which then crops up on now eight. Um, Boris Gardner, obviously, is, is the big one because Boris Gardner was a number one single when this album was, you know, I think number one as well. But that obviously probably shaped up quite late. So that, that's held back to, to number eight at Christmas. Uh, I think, you know, it's by, it bites calling all the heroes, which again, they 
skip out from seven and, and drop it at eight. So a few things to dance around, but I guess that's the, you know, that is, that's what you're, um, it's not a science, you know, and, you, and you're having to make a certain degree of, of, of guesswork at a certain point when you have to you know, call off the clearances for tracks. And, and I think by and large, they get it right most of the time. And I think as well, that is what makes the album so appealing, looking back, is that an element of curation to these albums. And that word's thrown around a lot nowadays, you know, curated playlists, curated albums and so forth. But there, there is that element to it and seeing how these albums are pulled together to, you know, to, to work. Um, record One Side 2, Boris Gardner, I think, was number one towards the end of August. <laughs> There's always a real big kind of lap of honour from the Now albums if they manage to release it with the current number one on it. And of course they did because it was Chris DeBurr. We love, we love DeBurr, obviously. Hard, <laughs> hard to kind of, uh, you know, kind of remember how, how big a track Lady in Red actually was. It was a huge track. What's interesting about this is that there's a few things here, actually. I think, so you've got On My Own by Pat Bell and Michael Donald. You've got Holding Back the Years by Simply Red. Both number two singles that stalled at number two for, you know, I think three weeks in the case of Patty the Bell, held off by, um, got to say, the Chicken Song. Chicken Song, chicken song. yeah, and, Chicken and, Song. And, 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 and Simply Red held off by Doctor and the Medics. What's interesting as well, though, I think, is that they knew this was going to be big. There was a feeling this was going to be a big hit single because it wasn't. This drops into that record two, side two, right at the end. Uh, sort of like the last track on the album. Um, but the fact that it does have its, you know, relatively uh, sort of glory position of record, you know, one side two, kicking it off, I think there was, there was clearly a recognition this was going to shape up to be a, as you remember, a huge, a huge hit single. If you actually look at that side two, you've got Christopher, you've got Absolute Beginners by David Bowie, which, you know, still stands the test of time as a fantastic single. Um, you've, yeah. got, you've got Invisible Touch by Genesis. That's a big trio to kick things off. It is a big trio. And I think it's, um, I mean, Absolute Beginners, obviously, you're absolutely right. Absolute Beginners is, is arguably his last absolutely impeachable track. There's been lots of great stuff since then. Um, but Absolute Beginners is absolutely classic Bowie uh, a number two single but back in March again quite an old track relatively relatively speaking but that that is a it's a yeah it's a, it's a big open trio and then you have got the chicken song you could understand why it could have been on this album because it was such a big song and spitting image in 1986 was such a big cultural thing but doesn't the album look so much better without it? Now does have a history with, with novelty singles. Broadly speaking, the, the, the comic relief-based singles. So we do have the Stonk by the Banana Armour and, and French and Sorders, you know, um, version of Help. But you're right. I think it would, it, would, it would cheapen it slightly now to look at it in retrospect, I think. I would like, I'd like to think that somebody at the, at the compilation team really dug their heels in and said, no, we're not having it. <laughs> <laughs> because because people will look back on this in the 21st century and thank us for not putting it on as it was basically a yeah. black a black lace pastiche three years out of date uh, yeah and it was on virgin i believe wasn't it, I think it was chicken, uh, chicken song was released on virgin so there yeah. was clearly somebody there who who you know they didn't have to license, license it in from from anybody else it was a it was a virgin track so um yeah i i imagine that exactly what happened <laughs> Any other points across the album that stand out for you? I think the interesting thing, and it kind of goes back to a little bit more about the release date, 
and the, the tracks that are on there. Because actually, when you look at the um, you look at the, you look at the hits, obviously, you've got the big number one. You've got Chris Rea Richie's number one when the, when the album's released. Weirdly, the next biggest single uh, in the chart is is uh, Camouflage by Stan Ridgeway. So, in terms of what was riding high in the in the hit parade at, at that point, across the whole album, you've got the, the weeks sort of you know, third week in August. There's only five tracks that are actually in the top 40 at that point, which seems a little bit a little bit slim. I think I think you probably want to have you know a few more big hitters that were very uh, contemporary at that point. Whether that's got something to do with release date, I don't know. Obviously, came out uh, second week in August, which is one of the latest summer albums. I think there's a couple of years later on that came out same week or the week after. Um, if it had come out curiously that traditional third week in July, end of July period, then actually it's about 18 singles that were still in the top 40 that would probably make it feel even more contemporary. Um, and a lot of that might have something to do with the summer album that was released. So if we're you know, talking about other compilations and other now compilations released at the time, there was one of the, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the second now spin-off album. We've had Now Dance slightly earlier, but the Now Summer album, which came out um, in July, whether it was putting a little bit of clear water between the two, I don't know. Two very different propositions. The summer album obviously was more traditional 60s, 70s summer hits. Didn't do massively well. I think just scraped and ten and then dropped away after a relatively short space of time. But it's really notable of its inclusion of having two Beatles tracks on it. Yeah. So that is, um, as I'm sure a lot of people know, very unusual. The Beatles were more clear for compilation. The now summer compilation cleared All You Need Is Love and Here Comes The Sun, which nowadays just seems uh, incredible. They managed to actually get away with that. It's, it's hard to see where in the marketplace the now brand for that stood because it certainly wasn't an album aimed at teenagers. It certainly wasn't an album aimed at the people who were watching Top of the Pops and reading Smash Hits. But looking back at it now, it really still stands. It's quite a well-sequenced compilation album. Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree. Um, even though, the, obviously, you haven't got a Beatles track kicking either of those, you know, the, the, the first record off. You know, it was the first, one of the first dipping the tone of water for you know, how they could expand, you know, the, the Now series from the traditional numbered Nows to what became... Again, a huge part of the brand by releasing, you know, sort of spin-off albums. And also, don't forget, by the time we hit Christmas in eighty-five, in uh, it was eighty-five, wasn't it? It was obviously the, the now Christmas album, um, which I believe that was number one uh, over now six and sort of the hits album. So, you know, they realised that there was something else. UB40. Let's let let's talk about UB40. UB40. So when. Uh, well, when I was when I was writing the now books with uh, with um, my writing partner Andy Healing, so you know all credit to, to Andy, uh, I did it by myself. Um, we had a, a good running joke that we always refer to UB40 as our old friends UB40 in the book because they they are so ubiquitous throughout um, you know the, the the whole of the now history. And I think something that the UB40 stats are phenomenal, and again, it's easy to forget that. And quite how big a pop band UB40 were with some like you know really big hit singles. So they had more uh, now entries uh, across the first ten volumes than anybody else. So they across you know seven times in the first ten volumes. I, I just think it's you know they 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 cast a very long shadow in in, in the whole of the now history. So uh, I think you know, a, a notable mention for them for, for still being there and second track on the first. The first side, you know, it's uh, a, a lot of fans there. It's uh, Virgin EMI. I can remember when um, 
I think their, their first greatest hits album came out. Um, very, very similar to Madness in that way. A band that really stood the test of time through the single releases. And when you saw them compiled together, it was a, it was a real strong collection. We've talked a lot around the acts on Now 7. We've also talked a lot around what else was in the charts. We can't finish up this podcast without talking about Grange Hill and the impact that they had, not just on the charts, but also I think it's fair to say Grange Hill really hit its stride in 1986. It was, it was, it was, it was because it was at the time when they developed the... Uh, uh, the, uh, the 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 Zamo Maguire um, becoming addicted to heroin storyline, which which culminated in him um, being found by Roland in the back of the arcade. I believe Roland was working in, you know, completely gouged out, uh, and 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 the jig was up for Zamo at that point. That led to them obviously being invited to you know, the White House, where obviously Nancy Reagan was was very much spearheading the Just Say No campaign in the states. Um, and very quickly, uh, surprise, surprise, the, uh, the the Just Say No single followed, which um, was as terrifying as, 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 as Zano's heroin addiction itself. But the highest climber this week, up to number five, the Grange Hill Mob, Just Say No. But this had a massive impact on me. I mean, I, I can remember this more than you know, more than anything else that I was either being taught at school or I was seeing on television. This this really sort of touched the nerve. I thought, well, that that doesn't look much fun. Um, um, but the single, obviously, it's 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 um, it, it has its place in pop culture. I think for you know, for that reason, it's a, it's a pretty terrible song. It's not as terrible as the follow up. Um, they did release an album uh, at Christmas. The, the follow up, you know, the teacher brackets smash head. Uh, which is a, is a pretty much a uh, a rap a two a, a two way rap with Gonch and Ziggy. It is on YouTube. I, I recommend people to to search it out, even just to watch it. You know, slack jaw for a few minutes. But this this had a yeah this had a, a, a massive impact. I think it was something that it, it did a lot for obviously you know, kind of drug education. You know, at, at the time and certainly hitting teenagers of a, of a certain age. It um it, uh, it well it, it, it put me off smack. Let's put it that one. It certainly was Green Chill at its peak. And it was a controversial subject. And yes, it, it, it maybe didn't um, rank along the greatest musical um, acts of 1986, but it was, it was important. And I think, again, you know, for, for children of a certain age, it felt like our own. And I think that was, that was very, very important as well. So thank you, Pete. It's been really nice chatting to you. We've had a real good dig back into Now 7. We've had a look at the summer of 86. I've certainly enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. It's been great. Yeah. No, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it. And that is where Pete and I left Now 7, Lovebug Starsky, and yes, even Debbie Amy. Partly to go and find video clips of the Green Chill cast rapping, but also partly due to some technical gremlins that hopefully didn't spoil your memory of summer 1986 too much. Thanks once again to Pete Selby for his time and incredible patience, and I hope that you'll join me again here on Back to Now for some more compilation stories. In the meantime, find out more on Twitter at Pop Rambler or the website www.backtonow.music.blog. Take care and goodbye. Sorry.